Welcome to the Gaylord Specialty Healthcare Podcast. This podcast will feature patients, families, and medical professionals dealing with serious illnesses or injuries and is meant to inspire, bring hope, insight, and a message of belief that life after a traumatic illness is possible. Welcome back to the Gaylord Specialty Healthcare podcast series. This is the Think First series, and I am your host, Megan Palmer. And today we have with us Officer Dave Peterson, a police officer from the New Milford Police Department of Connecticut, who's here to tell you a little bit about his background and his story and what it's like to come upon uh, an accident involving teens being on that other side. Recently, we've had a lot of our podcasts focusing on former patients, family members, professionals, um, and now we really get to hear from someone in the community who responds to these accidents and is part of the life-saving team to get these teens their lives back. So welcome, Dave. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, I want to know first and foremost a little bit about yourself. Tell us who you are, what you do, that kind of thing. Uh, so like you said, I'm Dave Peterson. I've got a wife. I've got three kids, small kids at home. Um, not looking forward to the teens yet, but we're m moving that way. Um, so I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And I've grown up in public safety um, since my high school days. Um, I started out working, actually volunteering in an emergency department when I was 16. Um, so I got hands-on views of stuff like that growing up in high school. And then once I graduated high school, I became an EMT. I worked on a commercial ambulance. I continued to work in emergency departments. And I also helped teach future EMS providers um, in that arena as well. And I've been teaching since that time. So for about 22 years, I've been teaching uh, EMS classes. And that was uh, starting out in Southern California. So I moved out here in 2005 and I've been here ever since. I continued my work on the ambulance out here, and then I started working as a public safety dispatcher for the city of Bristol. So I did that for about five years, and that really grew my interest in criminal justice. So that's when I took the leap and became a police officer. And it's been just over 12 years now with the New Milford Police Department uh, in the role of an officer. I do a, a variety of different things at the police department. I'm, I'm on the crash reconstruction team. I continue to teach their EMS uh, classes at the police department. I do dive rescue team. I'm on the child safety seat team. I also do a number of not so official titles uh, and I help write grants for um, highway safety. I am a peer support team member. I also, um, one of the biggest things is being a drug recognition expert instructor and drug recognition expert for the state of Connecticut. And that really is what gets me involved in teen and substance abuse and driving. All that kind of ties into that work. That's a lot of titles, but a lot of really important things that you're getting involved in, especially related to teens. Is there a big push right now for anything in particular as far as the drug recognition program goes or the teens? As a whole, um, because of the recreational marijuana legalization that occurred in April, big push in state legislature for advanced training for police officers in general for drug recognition, um, training more officers in advanced roadside impairment detection tests so that we can detect people that are impaired just more than just the alcohol portion of it. 
that we can see uh, drug impaired drivers. So that's been a big push. And the state is trying to push for more drug recognition experts um, slowly but surely to make sure we can cover the state well enough um, to help assist in detecting these drug impaired drivers. And, And that includes teens as well. Have you seen an uptick in the amount of teens that you're finding that are on drugs now that it's been legalized, sort of? I don't know if we've seen an uptick of uh, the number of teens using, but I think we've seen an uptick in the more public use, more relaxed use, because they think it's legalized for them um, as well. There's maybe a misconception on, on their part about, oh, well, now it's legal, I can use it, it's safe. Whereas, uh, you know, they don't have that information that it's not legal for them and it's probably not safe for them to use in general. And so, you know, with alcohol, there's the blood alcohol level of 0.08 to drive. What is the test for marijuana use? How do you know you're over the limit? So uh, the state of Connecticut doesn't have a a legal limit for marijuana. Like some states have uh, attempted to do that. Um, The problem is, is one person's impairment is not another person's impairment. So if we put a fine number on that, and that's alcohol included, um, it doesn't work well for us. So our tests now are field sobriety tests uh, to start off with, and then advanced roadside tests. And then the drug recognition expert program comes in and puts them through an intense 12-step process to determine if they're actually impaired or not. Maybe they're having a medical emergency that didn't pop up when they were roadside with the officer that was there. Maybe they were impaired at the time the officer saw them, but now they're not impaired when they're back at the police department. But the drug recognition expert puts them through this 12-step process, and that includes vital signs and some field sobriety tests and interviews, stuff like that, to help determine if there's active impairment or not. Wow. So if the officer comes upon this person driving that they appear to be impaired with drug use, they have to bring them back to the police department and then they call in the specialists? Or do you have someone on every shift that's really well-versed in this? I wish we had everybody (laughs) well-versed in this and we had at least somebody on every shift, but unfortunately, we don't. And that's statewide. On, on, it's not something that we have on every shift. And that was the big push with the legislation to get more people trained in that area. Um, so yes, it's the it's the same tests as we do for alcohol impairment. Mm-hmm. The officer's going to do the same field sobriety tests. And somebody that is impaired by cannabis or another drug, it's going to show up in those tests. So the officer's going to make a determination at that point whether they should be arrested and brought back to the station or not. And then once they're back at the station, they'll go through the same tests and rule out alcohol. And once that alcohol has been ruled out as the cause of impairment, then they'll contact a drug recognition expert to come in and help them determine what it is, uh, what category of drugs they may be impaired by. Now, if it is a teen, what would be the consequences of that? Teen use is the same, kind of goes along with alcohol. It's basically you know, no use at all. You can't use marijuana unless you're over the age of 21. You can't use tobacco unless you're over the age of 21, alcohol over 21. So it's the same uh, um, process. So the same consequences apply for teens. You're going to have your license taken away. You're going to have it suspended. You're going to need to do things in order to continue driving. In the eyes of uh, the government and the DMV, once you get your license, you're an adult in their world. So you kind of have the same penalties associated with that. 
That's good for teens to know because we go out to classrooms and preach that same thing. But I feel like until they know a friend that it's happened to or something happens, you know, they really, really don't take it to heart. But it's scary out there because it impairs your judgment and your insight and your reaction time. It doesn't matter if it's drugs or alcohol. Both are are really bad. And speaking with that, can you tell us a little bit about um, scenarios or scenes that kind of are embedded in in your head of accidents that you've come across involving teens, how traumatic and upsetting that can be? Well, I've come across a number of teenagers involved in crashes and from the most minor to the most serious. And the most minor can seem absolutely horrible for a teenager, especially a 16-year-old that's just got their license. They're on their own driving. And just a few weeks ago, I had a teenager just rear-end somebody and it was the most traumatic experience of his life. My mom's going to take away the car. Well, at least you're okay. The other person's okay. So you get your car taken away for a little bit. You're going to get it back. You're going to start driving in. It'll be fine. But on the, the other side of that, I've been to car crashes where two teenagers have been in the car and they've uh, one has died as a result of a car crash. Mm-hmm. Vivid one I can remember is two 18-year-olds involved in a crash where uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, and the girlfriend was nine months pregnant at the time. And unfortunately, She went into labor as a result of the crash, but couldn't be extricated from the car quick enough. So they had to be transported to the hospital where she gave birth at the hospital. And in the end, both um, her and the baby died as a result of the crash. So I've been on both sides of the spectrum as far as crashes go. That gives me chills. That's just horrific. Um, And then, of course, the boyfriend has to live with this embedded in his mind as well. You know? Yes. How How is it delivering the message to a parent? Have you done that before where you've had to go to their house, knock on their door and tell them the absolute worst news possible? I have not had to go tell a parent at their house. I've been on scene and unfortunately in this day and age, word gets out. Um, social media is huge. They don't arrive at their destination. Word gets out a crash occurs and they end up showing up to the scene uh, of this crash. And I've notification has taken place on scene. Mm. And I've had a variety of different reactions, which is normal. I've had anger. I've had people just want to punch somebody. I've also had the the crying and breaking down. And I've had the blank stares, the just not knowing what to do and multiple scenes that that's occurred on. And as far as responding out to a house to tell a, a parent, luckily, I haven't had to do that. You know, I've made other death notifications in general, at least involving teens and telling their parents it's rare. So I haven't had to do that, luckily. That's good. Knock on wood right yeah. so far. What do you think is the most common reason that teens get in car accidents? Two things, inexperience and overconfidence. Mm-hmm. That's probably the biggest reasons why they're in crashes. They haven't had the experience driving. They don't know how the car is going to react in certain situations. And then they're just have an inflated self-ego about their driving confidence and their ability to operate a car, which causes problems when something unusual happens for them on the road, whether they don't stop in time, whether they think they can reach over and grab the item that's on their passenger seat. And a big portion of that, too, is cell phones, distracted mm-hmm. driving, 
And that's a big push um, why the state put in place these graduated driver's licenses and not having people in the car with them in the first six months to a year after they get their license so they can develop the experience at least driving alone before they take the steps to have those added distractions. But unfortunately, those are the two things that contribute most to uh, car crashes. That overconfidence leads to them speeding, mm-hmm. taking the unnecessary risks that they normally probably wouldn't had they be more experienced on the road. Absolutely. And that's what we tell them too, is that, you know, unfortunately us kids in the, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties kind of messed that up for them by dying because we were getting our licenses going out on the road and had no restrictions. So, you know, in actuality, law enforcement is trying to stop kids from dying, stop teens from getting in these accidents. And that's very powerful message to give them. It is. And, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, technology has become better Um, car safety measures have become better. And so those number of people dying back in the 70s and 80s has lessened over, you know, as we get better in our safety measures. So maybe the car crash where somebody got hurt back in the 70s and 80s, they would only walk away with a minor scratch nowadays. So that also tends to inflate that self-confidence and that I'll walk away from a crash if it occurs. Yeah. Now, you said you were also um, sort of an expert in crash scene reconstruction. W- what does that involve? That What do you do? It involves a lot of math. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so every officer is trained to do normal accident investigation. We can come out. Um, we can see where the damage is on the cars. We take interviews of all the parties involved. And we can usually match up the interviews to the damage on the car. And it all makes sense about what a- actually occurred in the crash. But the more serious crashes that occur, there's going to be extra added investigation. So the crash reconstructionists come out. We take measurements of the scene. We use tape measures and lasers, and we measure every detail of the scene, every piece of evidence that it may be involved in telling us what actually occurred. We take the cars or the motorcycles or whatever was involved. We'll take it back to the station. We'll do in-depth measurements of those if possible. Mm. And what a lot of people don't realize is their car also has a black box, just like an airplane. Mm. So it may record things that occur up to the crash. So we'll do search warrants in order to look into the cars and take the black box data out and see if there's any information that we can glean from there. Vehicles have navigation and entertainment centers now, and that also contains information. So that can be downloaded and used in our crash reconstruction to see where the car was coming from, where they were going to. Was the person on their phone when the crash occurred, Mm -hmm. hands-free or not? It's still going to be a distraction. So that information can also be gleamed. We take a ton of photos. Uh, You know, normally five, ten photos on a normal crash, we're taking 300 photos. Um, And unfortunately, if it's a fatal car crash, we're also going to the medical examiner's office and following up when they do um, post-incident autopsies. Wow. How long does that process take usually? So if it's, a, if it's a crash reconstruction case, it can take six months to a year sometimes. Wow. Uh, we try to get it done as quickly as we can. But unlike bigger agencies, if it's a smaller agency, we also are still doing the stuff on the road. So along with investigating this crash, we're going to calls and then coming back, trying to do what we can, Mm -hmm. going back out. Bigger agencies, state police, Waterbury police, they may have a dedicated crash reconstruction team where that's all they do or a traffic 
unit, that's all they do. So the smaller agencies, it takes us a little bit longer to get through um, the, the crash reconstruction portion of it. But we try to do it as quickly as we can, at least the closure for the family. And we want, you know, they want answers just as much as we want answers. So we want to try to get it done. But it can take up to a year sometimes, depending on what the case is. Wow. And I think that's important for families to know, too, because I'm sure they get frustrated on the other side, but they don't realize you're still being a cop every day. Like there's still people in need emergently that need you that day. And absolutely trying to fit these in in between. Sounds like a lot of work, um, but absolutely important for everyone involved, obviously. Now, you think you treat your kids differently because of what you do and what you've seen? Or will you when they get to be I don't know, I don't know about differently now. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I have a, a better appreciation for life in general. After 22 plus years of going to these crashes and seeing these things, I think there's a better appreciation uh, for life and, you know, hugging and mm -hmm. kissing and saying, I love you. Um, even though as police officers, we may not show it as much <laughs> as uh, non-police personnel um, as the civilian world shows their love. Um, but we definitely have a better appreciation for it. And I know I do. And, but life lessons will probably come out more and more as they get older and towards the teenage years. And don't do this, do that. Don't, you know, do that on this. We'll see when it comes to that point. But there's definitely lessons that can be learned from all the stuff I've done over these, these years that will be imparted upon them, especially when it comes to driving. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a great topic to open up to our parents who are listening. You know, what do you think would be your advice for those on how to approach these subjects with their own teens? The best way to do it is be straightforward and don't beat around the bush and come right out and say it. This is what we want to talk about. I want to talk about driving. I want to talk about not using substances, period. It's a difficult discussion for any parent, especially if they don't have any experience with it. Approaching it and being straightforward and honest and straight to the point leaves out any ambiguity, leaves out any room for wiggle mm -hmm. as far as the teen goes, because every teen's going to look for a way around things. Right. Well, you didn't out. say that. You didn't tell me that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so at least if you're straightforward, straight to the point, it leaves that that question out. Hopefully, I'm sure they'll find a way around something. Right. Um, but being straightforward and honest and approaching the subject without any question and always being receptive and open for your team, letting them ask the questions, not pushing them away. You know, obviously if there's something going on, you know, they want that, that outlet. Maybe it's not you, maybe it's their friend, maybe it's counselor at school, but at least you're open straight to the point. They know they can come and talk to you about it because you approach them. I love that. Yes. That back and forth relationship is so good to build with your teen they're struggling with just trying to figure out their horm hormones and emotions. And then on top of that, the parents um, sort of that cloud of like guilt or, you know, whatever they may feel like they can't talk to them about. This is the time that parents can come and actually speak openly about it and let them hear what their teen has to say instead of just ignoring the problem to be until it becomes a big one. Right. And when it comes to, to car crashes, I think the biggest thing, with parents is when you get that call, you know, hey, mom or dad, I've been in a car crash. I'm okay. Can you come pick me up? Not arriving angry is probably <laughs> the number one step. They're already upset. Right. They're already either, uh, you know, sad Scared. or they're 
scared or they're angry that they got in this crash, they don't need that added anger. Mm-hmm. You can take care of that after that night's over or after that incident is over. Showing up, saying, at least you're okay. Everybody here is okay. We'll take care of the car. Yeah. It's just a car. Things can get fixed. That's probably one of the biggest things I've seen when parents come to the scene and pick up their teenager is when they're angry, it doesn't help anything. Right. It shuts down the person. Open arms and I love you. Simple. Mm -hmm. Um, And what do you think are the greatest life lessons you can share with us on how to stay safe, make those smart decisions um, as if you were talking to some of our teen listeners? Well, every teen's going to want to find something out on their own. And so there's only certain things you can tell them and trying to impart that substances, um, whether that be the legal stuff now or the illegal stuff is not good for them. What they say, the brain still develops toward 25 Mm -hmm. and the, the sooner they use, the worse off it is for them in the long run. So trying to impart that using is not good. This is what happens when you do use and parents can also seek that stuff out too seek those lessons, seek those information out. As as drug recognition experts, we're open to parents contacting us and giving, you know, letting us give them information. So seeking out that information about what substances can do in the body and imparting that on your teen is huge. Teaching them as far as driving the lessons that they need. What driving school nowadays teaches how to drive in the snow? Take your kid out to a parking lot that's completely empty when there's a little snow on the ground and just have them drive, hit the brakes, feel what it's like to slide. Mm -hmm. Take that a little extra step, especially being in New England. They're going to drive in the snow at some point. So teaching, taking those little extra lessons and, and imparting that upon them, teaching them that it's okay. Things happen. Take responsibility for it. Be honest, especially when you talk to police officers. We know when you're lying. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. If you tell us a story about how a crash occurred and it doesn't line up with what we're seeing, we know. Right. Um, so, and that respect that you show us, that you show your mom, your dad, anybody is going to be reciprocated. So if you're honest, you take responsibility, build your character. It's going to lead you leaps and bounds upon above the people that don't do that. And those are some of the, the lessons that I would impart. And I think something really important that you mentioned too, is that you can, parents can reach out to their local police departments and just ask to talk to somebody like you on how to approach their teen on different subjects like that. And maybe give them a little bit of insight on how to guide their conversations at home. Definitely. There's a ton of resources out there. You just have to look for it. Your local schools, your boards of ed, youth agencies, police departments, hospitals, There's a ton of resources out there. There's a ton of people in the community that are willing to help and willing to answer simple questions. I'm always open to people coming in and having a conversation, whether that be for 10 minutes or whether that be for an hour. If you want to talk about drug use and some signs and symptoms, I'll give you that information as much as I possibly can. I've done talks to school groups discussing what somebody under the influence of certain substances look like. I'm more than willing to sit down one-on-one and have those conversations as well. It's just a matter of reaching out and getting that information for you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dave, so much for coming in and sharing your expertise and knowledge with us and uh, a little insight on what it's like to be on the other side of the emergency medical services. So we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. 
And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in again on this very important topic of drugs and alcohol and teens related to um, accidents and traumatic injuries. So we'll see you all soon. Thank you for tuning into the Gaylord Specialty Healthcare Podcast. We hope that you will join us again to hear more stories that bring hope, insight, and a message of belief that life after a traumatic injury or illness is possible.